This morning's scripture reading is from Acts 20, 17 to 32. Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom, I've, whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Please join me as we pray God's blessing over the teaching of his word. Holy Spirit, we know you're here. Thank you that you illuminate the truth and you bring it to life. I pray that our hearts would be softened, that we'd have ears to hear your word, and Tommy's going to speak, and that our hearts, minds would be changed and we'd be transformed. Jesus, thank you for who you are, for what you're doing, what you've done. We look forward to hearing from you. In Jesus' name. Here's the truth. I'm embarrassed to call myself a Christian. When the topic comes up with new friends, I usually say that I love Jesus, but I don't belong to a particular denomination or faith group. They sometimes sneer and give me a look of pity, and I can see on their faces that they're looking at me as though I need saving. I can totally understand why, and I've often thought, maybe I do. See, I've been in a crisis of faith for the past few years more this past year than ever. The only reason I haven't renounced my faith is because I've experienced the real, holy, living God. I've felt and seen the power of the Holy Spirit. I've seen death turn to life, broken things restored. I've felt His unfathomable love the way we sing about it in church on Sunday mornings. But can I just be honest? It was never in a church service. It was in my home, alone with me, worshiping and praying for my heart, not just for my emotions. 
In fact, the more I've gotten to know other Christians, the more I've struggled in my faith because the truth is, I don't want to be associated with the church. During the darkest point in my life, after suffering a huge blow to my sense of security and self-worth, an injustice that many women experience and some don't survive, I had pushed through, forgiven, tried to be strong, and one day I felt emotional. Looking for someone to talk to, I went to my pastor's wife and she said, what is wrong with you? That person said they were sorry. You should be over it. Move on. Why is it such a bad thing to show vulnerability, pain, woundedness, or weakness in the church? We are all human. We all bleed. That's why we need a Savior. What is wrong with the church? This, this was an excerpt from a post of a friend of mine uh, that I came across this week when I was preparing uh, my message. And as I was doing that, I, I couldn't help but take notice of this. What is wrong with the church? That struck me. Particularly in light of the series that we're in, it struck me for two reasons, I think. First, not because the sentiment um, was unique, but because it has become an all-too-common narrative that we hear time and time again. Too often we hear people who have engaged the church feel dismissed, feel abandoned, disappointed, and eventually they become disillusioned with the very concept of the church. Now, based on my experiences, there's a couple reasons I, I think this story is being told more frequently. First of all, there are a lot of people from every walk of life uh, that I think will find themselves disappointed uh, no matter what. Uh, they'll be offended no matter what. Uh, we, live, uh, we live in a particular culture, in a particular society that magnifies the slightest of slights. Um, part of it is we've got life so good uh, that we are looking for things to be offended over. I had a conversation this week with some good friends of ours, uh, uh, Van and Gazim. They're, they're actually originally from, uh, from um, Albania. They were raised in communism. Uh, they lived in Europe for most of their lives, and now they're in Canada. And we were having a conversation specifically about this topic. And they were talking about how Americans are so sensitive. Uh, how, how they're saying how, like, you know... Anything you say to an, to an American, it, it becomes this big deal, and so nobody wants to say anything. And, and if you speak the truth to Americans, uh, they think you're rude, or they think you're... And, and, and most people in Europe look at Americans and think Americans are phonies, because there's no honesty between them, because everybody's worried that somebody's feelings are going to get hurt. And I think that's right. In my experience, as I've interacted with people internationally, I think that's right. See, some of you are offended I just said that. And so we do live in a culture and society that, that, gets, that gets offended easily and has, and has issues really easily. And that sensitivity to everything is only growing with time. And that is certainly, I think, a part of why we're hearing this type of sentiment shared more frequently. But even more importantly, even more concerning, I think, I think even more um, contributing to this reality is that I believe we are hearing that sentiment more frequently because the church has progressively lost sight of some of the deep and important truths that are necessary to create the family of God that Jesus Christ intended us to be. And that is essentially the second reason this post really struck me. 
We're in the middle of a series in, entitled Unstoppable, a study in the book of Acts. And, and as we've been going along, um, we've been saying that the reality is this is really a study in the unstoppable first century church. The, that, the, that this church that, that, that changed the face of the earth for the, for, in the name of Jesus Christ is a church worthy of us studying. Is a church worthy of us being introduced to? Is a church worthy of us emulating? And so as we've gone through, we've looked at the attributes and, and the attitudes and the actions to see them as a model for what we should be as the church. To be a church like the first century church that, that, that prays continually and collectively. To, to be, a, be a church like that first century church that, that embraced the Spirit of God at work in them and through them. To be a church that was so committed to the message of the gospel in spite of whatever opposition they faced. To be a church, a, a set of believers whose joy and whose hope was not in the circumstances of this life, but in the reality of who Jesus Christ was. Every step of the way, as we've, as we've looked at his word, we've been challenged to be that kind of church. Throughout the narrative of the book of Acts, we've seen what it means to be the church of Christ. What it means to be the earthly embodiment of Jesus. And this morning's text is no different. In fact, as I was confronted with that post, I couldn't help but see glaring hope in this morning's passage if we just embrace the instruction that it provides. As a pastor, I've always loved this passage. I've always loved this portion of the book of Acts because it gives this beautiful picture of the relationship of Pastor Paul and the church of Ephesus. Uh, it gives this beautiful picture of the relationship that he had with his people. Um, this is, this is, there was a special relationship that Paul had with, with, with the church in Ephesus. He, he had the opportunity through all the churches that he was gathering in, he had the opportunity to spend years in the church of Ephesus. And so you got you to understand the relationship he's having with these people. He's there, he's, he, he comes in and, and he establishes this church, he preaches Jesus, he, he raises these people up to faith in Christ. He, he had the opportunity to pray with these people, the opportunity to lay his hands on these people. He probably had the opportunity to marry some people. He was, he was able to be engaged in these people's lives for years. He knew them. He cared about them. He loved them. And here he is coming to them, and he's, he's sharing with them this fact that he's leaving, and most likely he's going to be going away, and they're never going to see him again. And the conversation he's having, I want, you to, I want to remind you, is uh, he's having a conversation with the elders of the church. He's having a conversation with the leaders he raised up. He's having a conversation with those people that he probably watched go from being heathens to being Christians to being spiritual leaders in the church. People that he laid hands on and anointed them to be the pastors, to be the elders, to be the leaders of the church of Ephesus. And that's the conversation he's having as he's leaving. His declaration is, I, I, I know that I'll never see your face again. I know that you'll never see my face again. I'm gone. I'm going to be leaving to do this. And I don't know what's going to happen, but I know I'll never see you again. The context of this conversation is this is Paul's last instruction, his, his last admonition to a church that he loves, to people he loves dearly, to those that he raised up and put in a place of leadership. 
And it's, and, it's, and it's why I think there's so much valuable instruction to us as the church buried in this passage. Is Paul saying, I'm leaving you, and these are the last words I have for you. These are the last things I'm going to say to you. These are, these are so important for you guys to hear. I want you guys to take this to heart. I want you guys to be affected by this. I want you to understand what God is doing and what God wants to do in this place. In, in light of that, in light of the reality that this is his final message to this church, it is fascinating that he spends a great deal of the early portion of his address on, an early, on, on a warning to his leaders. It's fascinating what he spends the bulk of his, the early portion of his address on. Having spent 25 years in pastoral ministry, it isn't surprising to me what he addresses here. Because he talks about leadership. He, he addresses the threat that bad leadership is to the church. As I said, having spent 25 years in pastoral ministry, that isn't surprising to me. I feel like a good percentage of the problems people face in the modern American church is because the leadership has lost sight of what the church is supposed to be and in turn and what they're supposed to be doing. One of my first mentors in ministry used to say regularly, all problems are leadership problems. And, um, and on many levels, I think that is true. And in this particular case, Paul seems to confirm that. Because as I say, he takes a significant percentage of his, of his, of his address, his last address to the church, and says, guys, we've got to make sure there's not leadership problems here. You need to be aware of the threat that is a leadership problem. He says, pay careful attention to yourselves, and to the whole flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things, to draw away the disciples after them. I really want you guys to take note of the stark description Paul uses to define the threat the church faces. Fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Paul's not holding back there, is he? Paul's painting a really stark picture. He's painting a frightening picture. He says there are fierce wolves that are going to come in among you, and they're not going to spare anyone in the flock. Their fierce wolves are going to come in amongst the sheep, amongst those that you guys have been entrusted with. And in his address to them, he says, and they're going to rise up. And he says, he says even from among you, even from among you, there will be those who rise up who are these fierce wolves who are going to not spare the flock. He's not soft-selling this. He, he, he's really serious. And it's interesting because in this admonition, he, he uses the same words Jesus uses to describe the threat to the church when he's talking to his disciples in Matthew. He said, he's, Jesus is talking to his disciples and he says this, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, 
but, are, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. He's using the same terminology, isn't he? Paul, on the one hand, is saying, guys, there's going to be those who rise up from among you, and, and they're going to be wolves that do not spare any member of the flock. And then in here, he, he, Jesus says, listen, there's going to be false prophets, false teachers that rise up, and they're going to be ravenous wolves. Both Paul and Jesus identify a serious threat to the church and therefore to its people. And they are ravenous leaders who draw people to themselves. This is really important for us to understand. The wolves are not those outside the congregation. They're not simply the people in the congregation. They are those who are leaders who use their position to feed off the people. They are are those who are leaders in the church that use the position to fulfill their desires. Jesus identifies false prophets that pretend to be sheep in the pen with you, but are really ravenous wolves that are looking to feed on the sheep. Paul is talking to two leaders in the church and says, I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. You've got to remember the dynamic that's at play here. At Ephesus, these are leaders he laid hands on and anointed to be the leaders. And he says, my concern is even from among you, that there will be those who rise up to feed on the sheep. The indication seems to be that Paul is warning the elders, the pastors of Ephesus, to look at themselves first. From among your own selves there will be wolves and they'll rise up from among you. The leadership, the elders. That's who he's talking to and that's who he's talking about. Too often I found myself when I've interacted with pastors over the years and they spend a lot of time teaching each other on how to look out for wolves among their crowd, among their flock. And I've always found myself a little bit uncomfortable with that conversation. Are there people in the church that cause problems? I'm standing here to tell you, yes. Are there members of the flock that end up causing issues? Yeah. You know what the sheep do sometimes? They make a mess. They bite each other. They chase each other around. They don't do what they're supposed to do. But that doesn't make them wolves. The admonition all throughout Scripture almost always focuses in on those people who are the ones that are leading. They're the ones who seem to rise up from amongst the sheep and are really wolves in sheep's clothing. And the mark of a wolf is fascinating and consistent through Christ's teaching here, through Paul's teaching here, And even Peter gets into the act in 2 Peter chapter 2 when he warns against false teachers who bring destructive heresies and says, in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Jesus says they are ravenous wolves. Paul says they they, they will draw away disciples to themselves. And Peter says, in their greed, they will exploit you. All three of them 
are giving us the markers, giving us the, the, the idea, giving us the, 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 the flag that waves to show you where the wolves are. All three of them are, are, are making the, the selfish, self-serving nature of false leadership the mark of a wolf. This is honestly one of the reasons why we should be uncomfortable in our culture and our society with celebrity pastors. This is really one of the reasons why we should be uncomfortable with pastors who, who want to lift themselves up. And, and, and I, mean this, I mean this sincerely, and I'm not... And I'm not, saying, I'm not saying that anybody who does any of these things is, is, is for sure a wolf. But I'm telling you, in my own life, I have wanted to make sure that I don't lift myself up above what my position is. It's one of the reasons why you don't see me on social media. It's one of the reasons why you don't see a lot of selfies of me with, with other celebrity pastors and with, and, and with, uh, and with uh, uh, Christian musicians and saying, look at who I'm with right now. It's one of the reasons why I've always, had a, had a, I've always had a strong stand against this idea of video venue churches. I was saying, let's take a pic, let's, let's, let's videotape Tommy, and let's put him at other campuses, other places. Because the problem is, each one of us has in us the capacity for selfishness and ego. And when we structure our churches in a way in which the pastor is held up as the man, as the guy, uh, from whom everything else flows, what you do is you feed into your own ego and into your own pride. Listen, it is enough of a, it is enough of a challenge, it is enough of a threat to know every time I get up here, the, chair, the chairs are facing me. Uh, it is enough of a challenge to know when I get off the stage, if Jesus Christ and His Spirit uses me in a way to touch you, I have people coming up to me and say, oh, pastor, that was so great. We have got to be able to put ourselves in ministry in a position in which we live in a place of humility, knowing who we are before the people of God, but more importantly, who we are before Jesus Himself. And so the things that you do, you have to make sure you guard against that. This isn't about me. This isn't for me. This isn't because of me. And, 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 I, and I want you to understand something here. I get it. I understand my role in this church. I understand. I understand that, that it's been important how God has used me over the years. This isn't meant to be false modesty. It's not. But more importantly, I understand who I am before Jesus Christ. And I understand who it is that does anything of any value in your life. And it's not me. He may choose to use me, but you have to have the right view. And when you don't, the pride and the arrogance rises up inside of you, and it turns you from being a shepherd of the people to a ravenous wolf that only desires to feed on God's people. Ultimately, it flows from this that we get the problems of the church. All problems are leadership problems. See, when leadership is operating from a selfish, self-serving, ravenous, greedy posture, what flows out is a church that reflects that vice. And that is why Paul's admonition to the, in this morning's text completely counters this narrative. 
and why we as the church must embrace his instruction if we're going to be a church that emulates the first century church and a church that reflects what Christ wants us to be and not reflect our culture's values. Ultimately, this morning's message is going to end up in a two-parter because I think there's too much here for me to capture in just one day. Or maybe I was inspired by the Avengers movies, but... The first corrective instruction Paul provides is to never lose sight of the price that was paid. Look at the way Paul frames his entire admonition to the leadership. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God which he obtained with his own blood. As a pastor, if you read that passage, it should kick you right between the eyes. It should recalibrate you in a deep way. Paul uses and chooses particular words here to convey something that is so important for the leadership of a church to understand. How does Paul describe the church? How does he frame what the body of Christ is? Who are we as the church? The church of God whom he obtained with his own blood. Who are we? Who is the church? Who is the flock? Who are those that you're pastoring? Who, who, what is that that we are a part of? We are the church of God that he obtained with his own blood. This is two very important realities that we can't lose sight of. The first is, is linked to the encouragement Paul is giving to the leaders to help counteract the selfishness of wolves. He's talking to these people, these people that he said, listen, when I go away, I know ravenous wolves are going to come in. He says, even maybe it's going to be from amongst you guys. But what I want you guys to understand is that you have been made overseers of the church of God that he obtained with his own blood. The church belongs to God. And it was bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. The church belongs to God and it was bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. It's His church, not yours. The church doesn't serve you. The church doesn't belong to you. They're not your bride. He bought the church. He paid for the church. He provided the dowry. They belong to Jesus. The church belongs to Christ. He paid the price. He is the master. He is the owner. He is the bridegroom. It's not yours. Yes, as pastors, God has given us the calling. He has given us the responsibility. He has made us his under-shepherds, as Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 5. But they are his sheep bought with his blood. You understand the depths of that implication as it should apply to, to those, of, those of us who have been put in leadership over the church? Too many, too many pastors 
are messing around with Jesus Christ's bride, thinking it belongs to them. Too many people, too many pastors believe that the people who are in their congregation belong to them. And, 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 it, and, it, and, it, and it really, it is really a, it really is a subtle trap that you can fall into. It's really one of the reasons why you rarely ever hear me say, my church. A lot of times you get together as pastors and they say, well, my church, we. And I try really hard to consciously say, at Mercy Hill Church, we. This isn't my church. This church belongs to Jesus Christ because he bought it with his blood. And this isn't my church. This church is our church. That each one of us stands in a, in a position of responsibility to fulfill the roles that he has given us to make sure that we are the church that honors Jesus Christ. I've got a different role than you. There's no question about that. But it doesn't make any difference. The Word, the word of God is really clear what the body of Christ is. There is some that is the eye. There is some that is the ear. There is some that is the hand. But it's, it's very clear. There is nobody that is greater than the other. Now, I may be the tongue. I'm the guy who's got to talk every so often. But that doesn't make me more important or make me better. We belong to Jesus Christ who bought us with his blood. This is Paul's point in 1 Corinthians when people began to follow a guy. For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I, fo I follow Apollos, are you not being merely human? What then is Apollos? What, what, is, what is Paul? Servants, through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he, he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field. You are God's building. Do you see the clear declaration that Paul is making here as it relates to the role of the, of the pastors in relationship to God's people? He says, listen, I'm, I want you to remember who's saying this. Paul is saying this. Paul is saying, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but what are we? What does he say? Nothing. We're nothing. It's what God did. It's what God grew. But then he goes in and he particularly says, he says, you are God's field. You're God's building. The imagery he's having, he says, and we are his laborers. So he says is the field belongs to the master. The master has his field, and the master has been working, and he hired us to plant. And he hired us, and he hired us, and he hired us to water, and he hired us at a certain point to bring in the harvest. But it all belongs to the master still. It's his field. And he says in there, he says, he says, he says, we'll get paid our wages. We just work for him. He owns it all. His whole argument here is you have got to understand in leadership the church belongs to God. We're just workers, he says. We're just laborers, he says. We'll get our due wages. But the field, the building, the increase, the harvest, the church, that belongs to him. It was bought with a price. Pastors who lose sight of this reality set the church on a, in a destructive direction. But this, is, but this reality is a reality that needs to be embraced by the congregation too. 
Jesus Christ bought this church. Jesus Christ bought the church. Jesus Christ bought you. He bought me. He bought us. And this is a reality that not only pastors have to understand, but we have got to make sure we never lose sight of the value of the price that was paid for the church. We have to value the church because of the value God put on the church. We can't sit back and go, oh, I don't care. It's not important. Man, I really hate being a part of church. I really hate being around other Christians. I really hate this. I'm just going to pull away. I don't care. Do you know how much God paid so that you might have entrance into this body? Do you know how much God paid that I might have entrance into this body? Do you know how much God paid so that we might have community, that we might be this family? He paid with the blood of Jesus Christ. I get it. People suck. Even people in the church suck. They can be selfish and stupid and self-centered. They can say things and do things that are wrong. Even we Christians lose sight of the beauty of Christ and in our brokenness embrace the ugly of selfishness and self-righteousness. But the values we have as Christians and the value our brothers and sisters have as, Christ, as fellow Christians has been measured in the blood of Jesus Christ. You're here because he valued you so much. Christ went to the cross for you. Your place in faith, your fit place in the family, your place in the church is not something you should disdain. Is not something that you should take lightly. Is not something that you should you should look at and go, ah, it doesn't really matter that much. God cared so much about your place in the body of Christ that he sent his son to pay for your entrance with the blood of Jesus Christ. You're here because he valued you so much. Christ went to the cross for you. We are here. The church is here because God valued this idea. He valued this community so much that Christ went to the cross for it. We cannot treat this idea with flippancy. We cannot treat this idea with irreverence, with disdain. The church was bought with the blood of Christ, and we can never forget that. You are in the body of Christ by the blood of Jesus Christ. Hold that position precious. And the people around us were bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. How precious are they to you? It is too easy for us to flippantly walk away from community, to flippantly walk away from relationship because our feelings were hurt or because this happened or because that happened. The price, the cost, the pain, the suffering Jesus Christ went through so that you might be in this relationship should, should stand as a challenge to each one of us to say, I can hold on to this. I can stay in this. I can love and forgive 
and sacrifice for my brothers and my sisters in Christ. Because Jesus did it for me so that I might be here. The people around us in the body of Christ were bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. Even the insensitive people. Even the mindless people. Even the forgetful people. Jesus loved them enough to die for them. How much do you love them? I don't think it's coincidence that Jesus Christ established the family table of the church at the Last Supper. I don't think it's coincidence that he said, do this in remembrance of me. I don't, think it's, I, I don't think that it is coincidence that, he, that, that the church established this opportunity where we come together and we say we are the body of Christ. We are the family of Christ. Why? Because his body was broken for us. Because his blood was shed for us. And so each one of us comes to that place and comes to that moment and declares our participation in the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Paul in his admonition in 1 Corinthians is, is, is challenging that church, is confronting that church because they don't love each other the way they're supposed to. Jesus Christ shed his blood. His body was broken that we might be the church. We can never lose sight of the price that was paid for the body of Jesus Christ. I want this to be our prayer. I want us to pray that we might see the value that Christ sees. I want us to pray that we may take hold of the truth that His church, that this church, was bought with the blood of Jesus Christ. That He cares enough to die for you and for me, and for us. He purchased our entrance into this body with his blood. Don't give up on it. Don't give in to the lure of hurt feelings. Don't go from this situation to that situation to this situation because we've made it about us. That attitude, that, those actions reflect the selfishness of selfish leadership. It's easy for us to sit and point at that and not realize it's influencing us too. Jesus Christ bought you with the shed blood of his own body. Jesus Christ established you with the shed blood of his own body. Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ initiated this body with his shed blood. May we value it deeply because he does.